The scripture reading today comes from Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of our Lord. Good morning, College Park. Take your Bibles, please, and turn over to Colossians 1, verses 21 to 23. want to say hi to our friends in Columbus. Glad that you are worshiping again the second Sunday after the floods. Know that we're still praying for you and looking forward to how God is going to continue to work through you, your labors, the work of ministry there to ignite a passion for Christ in a flood-ravaged community. And thank you, College Park here in Indy, who have been continually helping, praying, and giving towards that project. I want to remind you that is a uh, more than a two-week project for us as a church ministry, and want to continue just to lay that before you. Be sure that you continue just to help in any way that you can. I also want to highlight two other things um, that are happening. First, uh, inside your uh, bulletin, you'll see a card that looks like this. And I want you to take that card out now, if you would, and uh, just put it somewhere in your Bible or near your Bible throughout the course of the message today and um, towards the end in particular. I'd like you to use this card. I'm not going to exactly tell you where. Just throughout this morning, I just want you to think about maybe one lesson that through Colossians chapter 1 that the Lord taught you that you don't want to forget. And also there's a prayer request spot down there. This card is for me. Meaning that when you're done with this card, I'd like you to bring this to the usher desk and there's a slot or something. The ushers have told me you could put this in or just drop this on the desk. Um, I, I need this and here's why. Because it helps me to know just some of the things that God has spoken to you about through this series. To even know kind of where we go uh, in Colossians moving forward. And also anything that I can help in terms of praying for you specifically about. So this is, you know, you get on, on Sunday to hear from me. This is my opportunity to hear from you. This is not the time to give constructive criticism on the message. Um, there, are, there are other ways to do that, including saying nothing and pray. But um, you could, uh, this is supposed to be, this is what God is doing in my life, okay? All that to say, you're more than welcome to uh, give a suggestion anytime you want, just not on this card, okay? Uh, secondly, or third rather, uh, tonight is our first Fresh Encounter service, and I am so juiced, if that's a word I can use, to be able to lead this time of worship and prayer. Our aim, if you've never been to a Fresh Encounter service, it is to blend worship and prayer and just to bring the body of Christ into the presence of Christ, let Christ speak to us through song and through word and through prayer time. Um, and uh, that's tonight at 6 o'clock. We're going to be praying through the theme of Colossians chapter 1. We did this when I was candidating here. Um, I asked to be able to do it when candidating because I wanted you to know that if you vote yes on me, this is coming too. And so uh, that's part of the package, so to speak, because it's just part of my heart, not only to be a man of the word, but also a man of prayer. And I need you to pray with me so I can pray better. And so that's really what the Fresh Encounter Service is all about. So please come. If you have someone, a friend that's burdened, has some prayer needs, bring them along. They will be encouraged. There will be some times for us to even pray with them and for them. And just want to lay before you a Sunday night tonight. It's going to be really important. So um, if you want to learn how to pray, come. If you're hungry, pray. If you're spiritually dry, pray. Uh, come. If you just don't know how it is that you could seek the face of Christ in a new way, come. So basically, yeah, everybody needs to come. So Colossians 1. 
21 is our text. You're there. Let's pray. So we ask the Lord to help us this morning. Lord, it's good to be here today, good to be in your house and have before us a text um, that is um, helpful and compelling and a command that we're to not shift from the hope of the gospel that we heard. So I pray today that you by your spirit would empower us to hear from you, to know what you're saying and what next steps in our relationship with you you want us to take. I pray for clarity among this, in this text. I pray, Lord, for power. And I ask that you, Holy Spirit, would do what only that you can do, and that is to bring the Word of God to the people of God with a, a level of conviction that it's you who are speaking to us. So, Lord, help us today. We, I know that I can't do this, but I know that Jesus can. And so we're going to rely on you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. My parents live on a lake in southern Michigan, and uh, part of the rite of a passage of a father is uh, teaching my kids how to water ski. How many of you know how to water ski? Let me see. All right, excellent. How many of you have never water skied? Okay, good. I will not teach you, just so you know. But um, one of the rites of passage of a father is to teach my kids how to water ski, and um, when my boys were um, six years old, I uh, decided that now was the time for them to be able to learn, and they, they really wanted to learn. And so I was uh, getting them ready um, to get in the water, put the life jacket on, had the, the skis were all fitted and everything else, and then I jump in the water with them. And I have fond memories of floating alone in the middle of the lake after I've held their skis, and they popped up out of the water, and they're going, and I'm cheering in the water watching the boys go. And So I'm there in the middle of the lake, and and just watching the, the events of the summer, and it's just kind of a rite of passage. It's a fun thing. With all of my kids, though, I've given them a little speech about water skiing. I tell them the basic principles. Hey, keep your feet straight. When Grandpa pulls the, the, the boat, kind of lean back, and then when you, when you get up, just bend your knees a little bit. But then I always give them this very important piece of advice. If you fall, or rather, when you fall, be sure that you let go of the... Rope, right, because you've seen it, haven't you? Somebody's like, and you're like, let go! And their mouth is all open like a big fish net, right? And they're just go, 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 go. And I had this image of my, my little children, of um, them going along into the uh, the water, and suddenly them refusing to let go of the rope, and boom, 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 all the way down. Well, when my kids were six years old, I taught them how to water ski, and in the midst of their discussions about wanting to learn, Jeremiah, who at the time was three, said... Dad, I want to water ski too. And I was like, three years old, water ski. I was like, nah, I don't think so. He started to cry. And so in my one of my weaker moments as a father, in my lesser um, parenting skills, I said, you know what, let's just let him try. And Sarah was on board with it, which I was kind of surprised with. But So I jumped in the water with him, strapped a little life jacket on him, and put some skis on him, and I was there in the water holding the skis and as I whispered into his ear, I said, Jeremiah, now look, you're, you're going to do this, and you're going to fall like right away. Okay, so when you do, just be sure, but you're like, like my little baby boy. You've got to let go of the rope. Okay, Dad, let go of the rope. Okay, Dad, let go of the rope. Right, let go of the rope. Good. So we're in the water, and I said to my dad, okay, hit it. <laughs> and my dad hit it, and little Jeremiah popped out of the water, and at three years old, Play water skis. And I'm sitting in the water going, yeah! Oh my goodness! Don't forget to let go of the rope! Right? 
So one of the things that's important for kids to know, anyone to know when you're water skiing, is, look, you've got to learn to let go of the rope. And while that's a great thing for someone to learn when it comes to water skiing, this morning we're going to talk, in terms of the gospel, the exact opposite is the case. And that is that we are to never let go of the gospel. When it comes to our relationship with Christ, when it comes to what it means for us to be a committed follower of Him, that there is something that we never let go of, especially especially when we feel like we're going to fall. In those moments of life when we don't know what's happening, when we're not sure what it is that's going to take place in our life, it's in those moments that we need to hunker down and say, I will not let go of the gospel. This morning we're uh, drawing to conclusion um, Colossians chapter 1. This text that has been incredibly helpful for us to learn what it means to have Christ at the core. And my aim through this entire chapter has been to help us learn how to connect our lives to the centrality of Christ. I want to remind you where we've been in this book. Chapter 1, we learned about the broad overview of the book of Colossians. We learned that Christ essentially is the core, that Jesus is the center, we just need to deal with it. And then we looked at the fact that Colossae USA is a uh, really a statement of what's happening in the book of Colossians is really what's happening in our own present culture. Remember the Oprah Winfrey show? Remember that video clip? And then uh, we talked about the relevance of the gospel to our daily lives. Remember how I applied the gospel to mothers who feel like you have a master's degree in Cheerio picking up? Remember that? Picking up Cheerios and you learn how to pick up Cheerios for the glory of God? Or you remember this? Remember, maybe you will remember this one where um, my wife decided that instead of just moving, she was going to move and not sin. Again, connecting the gospel to that. We also learned that we are to pray for people that we love. Remember that there are, are people that were all up here after the service uh, on that particular Sunday praying for people who we love, people who are concerned about. And then we also learned that we need to embrace dependency or our own powerless or how valuable Christ is, that we need to say to him, Jesus, I'm dependent upon you, I'm powerless to do anything on my own, and that I need to learn how to treasure you above all things. And then last week we really boiled it down into a simple statement where we said, look, I know that you can't, but what? Jesus can. I know that I can't do it, I know that I'm not able to make it happen, but I know that Jesus can. And so this morning in Colossians 1, 22 to 23, we're going to examine the way in which Paul now says, look, as we come to the end of this chapter, as we come to the the essence of what it means for Christ to be uh, the supreme ruler over everything, I want you to know that you are to not let go of the gospel. And this morning there's two things that I want you to not do. The first thing that I want you to not do is I want you to not forget. So that's point number one, as I don't want you to forget. Specifically, I don't want you to forget where you've come from. The second thing is, I don't want you to forget or neglect in any way the beauty of the gospel, and I don't want you to ever let go of the gospel. And those two things this morning are going to serve as the outline of uh, what it is that we're going to look at and examine. So first of all, verse 21, it says this, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So verse 21 and verse 22 are a reminder of why the gospel is important. And he says, look, I don't want you to forget your past. I don't want you to forget the price. And I don't want you to forget the purpose of the gospel. That word gospel is the word good news. Good news. 
And the central message of the gospel is this, that by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he makes a way for substitutionary death to take place. In other words, that somebody died, Christ, so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you could be a new creature. And the heart of the message of the gospel is that the most important decision that anyone makes is the decision to admit that you're a sinner, that you throw yourself on Christ, and you ask him to be your Savior and Lord. That is the heart of the gospel. But the problem is that far too many people think that once they've got that, that that doesn't relate to their lives. That the gospel has no connection to Cheerios. And the gospel has everything to do with how we pick up Cheerios. It has everything to do with how we drive, how we manage our finances, how we do marriage and life. The gospel relates to all of those things. And what Paul is saying here is, look, in the midst of life's storms and difficulties, or when just normal life happens, don't drift from your commitment to the gospel. And what he does is he anchors them back to their past, reminding them that they need to rehearse the beauty of the gospel. So don't forget the gospel. So your past. Notice there in verse 21 he says this, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Here's what we're going to do. I want you to think of, as it relates to your past, I want you to think of the most despicable, disgusting, your worst sin you've ever committed. I'm going to give you 15 seconds to think about it. Then I'm going to walk around. I'm going to ask a couple of you to tell me what it is. Ready? Okay. Start thinking. Start thinking. You're like, why didn't we sit over there? Why didn't we sit over there? You got it? Okay, so here's the deal. I'm not going to ask you. You're like, whew. But the reason that I set that up that way is because for a half a second, some of you thought, Okay, no, he's like really not going to ask, is he? Because there's no way I'm saying publicly what my most despicable and awful sin in the world is. And the reason that I want you to think that and feel that for a moment is because what Paul wants you to do in this text is he wants you to remember your past. Now, not that you'd be held back by your past, but he wants you to remember what you were saved from. He wants you to remember what your condition was like before you came to Christ Not so that you'll be enchained to it, but rather that on the backdrop of the darkness of your past, the gleaming jewel of the gospel would shine incredibly bright. That church is supposed to be a group of people who just were like some of you kind of folks. That the confession of all of us is not that we're perfect, but it's that we serve a perfect Savior. It's not that we've never messed up, but rather it's that a Savior that we know has cleaned us up. And so Paul says here, look, your past, how does he describe it? He describes it first that our problem was our alienated and hostile disposition. An alienated and hostile disposition, or he says you were alienated and hostile in mind. That word mind in the Hebrew Old Testament, when they translate it into Greek, often the word mind and heart were used interchangeably. So the word mind isn't just what you think about or thoughts that are in your head. No, rather the idea of mind is like who you are, the disposition of your heart. Put it this way, it's the bent of your will. So what Paul begins here, it says this, that the actions of your life are a byproduct of the nature of your heart. So our problem is not just that we do evil things. Our problem prior to Christ is that the very inclination of our heart was bent to be hostile and alienated towards God. It means that by the very definition of who we are, that we are set in insurrection against God. And our hearts, by their sinfulness, beat to try and dethrone God. That's man's natural condition. 
And so he says that the problem is not just what we do, it is that we are alienated and hostile to God. It means that we don't belong, we don't fit, we are his enemies. It means that every one of our paths are exactly, essentially the same, that every one of us were alienated and hostile to God. We were bent against him. Now, the text goes on and it says this, that therefore, by your wicked and hostile and alienated mind, he says, then you did evil deeds. Verse 21 says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So understand that, that the evil deeds come out of a hostile heart. The evil deeds come out of a hostile mind. It is that Paul says here that the things that we did, the covetousness of our hearts, the lust of our hearts, the anger of our souls, that these were the things that came out of a heart that in effect said to God, you will not rule over me. Such that we used anger as a weapon against God. You see, your anger isn't just anger. No, your anger before you came to Christ was actually the way that you said to God, you will not rule me, and they were the weapons of our insurrection. So our problem is not just what we do. No, that what we do is the fruit of who we are. And what we end up doing is we take our lust and our idolatry, and we use them as the weaponry that we say to God, you will not rule us. You will not have reign over me, and I will use my lust and my idolatry to show you that I am God. That's a big deal. And that comes out of hearts that are bent on wickedness and evil and bent on insurrection. Such that when C.S. Lewis describes the nature of who we are and what our problem is in the gospel, in his book Mere Christianity, he says this, Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who needs to lay down his arms. Read that again. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who needs to lay down his arms. So do you see what happened? Paul tells us that in the gospel what happened is that Christ, even though your heart was set against him, even though your disposition was bent to be his enemy, even though you were involved in an insurrection and you used, and you used evil deeds in order to, to show God that you were in charge, Even in the midst of that, the Bible tells us that Christ comes to reconcile you to himself. And in that act of reconciliation, you lay down your arms and you say to Christ, you are king, I am not. Remember, Jesus is the core. Deal with it. It is that we lay down our weapons. So the nature of our rebellion against Christ was not just the evil deeds. Oh, church, it was far worse than that. The nature of our rebellion against God was the very disposition of our heart, the way we were bent, and the reality of who we were. So look, God didn't just save you from your sins. He saved you from yourself. That's what he saved us from. He saved me from me. So when I say that, The biggest sinner that I know is Mark Rogovitz because I know my heart. I don't know yours. I know my heart, and I know the inclination, the bent, the the will of it. And I know that apart from Christ, there is no hope. And thank God he saves me from me. So for some of you this morning, the message you need to hear, the biggest problem in your life is not the sins you do. It is the very essence of who you are fundamentally you are a hostile person against God and you use your wicked deeds to try and usurp God's authority to tell him that you're in charge and yet God is perpetually calling you to lay down the weapons of your rebellion and come to me for the forgiveness of your sins. So that's your past. Notice the price, secondly, in the text. Not only do we need to not forget the gospel because of our past, but also the price, it says here, that 
Verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So it tells us here that Christ has reconciled to us in his body, which is the flesh. Last week we saw two key words, blood and cross, and now in this text we see two more words, flesh and death, meaning that Christ hangs between heaven and earth in order to bring reconciliation between God and man. Here is the sinless Son of God who is absorbing the wrath of God for our insurrection. Here is the sinless Son of God who by His sacrifice God grants to you forgiveness and gives Christ all of your sin and hangs between heaven and earth so that God and man could be reconciled. And so the commandment here, the call from this text, is to not for, to forget where we had come from, the despicable nature of our rebellion, and nor, or, or rather, it's also a call for us not to forget the indescribable worth of the Son of God who was murdered, who was murdered to bring you back to your God. And Paul says, don't forget these things. And then it goes even further, and this I love. Look at the last part of verse 22. Here's the purpose. In order, in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. So that little word, in order, whenever you see that, that means that there's a purpose statement coming. So when you see the word in order, you might want to circle it, put a little arrow to the next statement, because it's a word that's telling you, look, everything that was prior now is going to give you a purpose. Here's the reason why this took place. And here is why your past and the price now converge into this beautiful purpose. Here's the reason for redemption. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So get this. The goal is that when you stand before him, here's the end game, that God would be able to see you as something that you would never be without Christ. It's good to be reminded of where we've come from because one day we're going to stand before God. The Bible tells us that we're going to all stand before Him. Our day in court will come and we will stand under the holy gaze of God. And on that day there will be no swearing to tell the truth. No bailiff, no angel's going to come to you, hold out a Bible and say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, the whole truth, so help you God. There's going to be none of that. There will be no discovery hearings. There will be no motions, no depositions. There will be no lies in this court. Why? Because you don't testify. That's why. God testifies about your heart. And guess what? He knows your heart even better than you do. There's no need to swear you in because there's going to be no lie and God's going to tell you what you're like. I mean, think of that. Here is God, the holy God who knows your heart, and he just tells you, this is what you are like. There's no lying, no depositions, no swearing to tell the truth. It's just all truth about your heart. And yet the Bible tells us that on that day, when you stand before God, even though you were his enemy, even though you were involved in the insurrection with your lust and your lies, even though your heart was bent against him, because of the work of Christ, God looks at you and he calls you holy Morally pure. He calls you blameless. Free from every fault. He calls you above reproach. Which means you are absolutely guiltless. And God would be a liar and a fool to call you that. Because you know you're not that. And God knows you're not that. And the only reason he can say that. 
is because he's taken the righteousness of Christ and he's given it to you and he took your sins and gave it to Christ. And in that holy exchange, God declares you to be something that you would never be apart from Christ. And that's why, church, he's the focal point of heaven. That's why he's the core. That's why he's the center of everything because we've got nothing without him. Nothing. We were his enemies. We were involved in the insurrection. We used our sins to say to him, get off my back, I'll do what I want. And yet God calls us holy, calls us righteous, calls us his son. Now I know that you maybe know this in terms of the facts that this is in the Bible, but I want you to just feel like what it would be if like an enemy was treated this way. Imagine that in the hills of northern Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden is finally captured by an elite group of army rangers. And Osama bin Laden is flown to the United States for trial on a U.S. Army jet. He lands, he's taken off the plane in handcuffs, and the entire world no doubt would notice, wouldn't they? They finally got him. Imagine that the United States government begins to set up a court of law to try him, to show the world that Osama bin Laden has finally been brought to justice. And as he sits in a jail cell for about three weeks, suddenly the President of the United States calls for a press conference and he announces that in order to bring peace to the Middle East, he is going to summarily pardon Osama bin Laden of all charges, grant him full clemency, clears him of all wrong, and then goes even further, decides he's going to name him an honorary citizen to the United States and create a new cabinet position called the Director of Middle East Relations, to which he's going to appoint Osama bin Laden. That's not going to happen. And the papers would read, Scandal. Shock. Stunning decision by President. Why? Because the idea that you would take an enemy and clear him and then bring him into that circle, it just doesn't fit with what seems to be just or fair or right. It's a scandal. Do you know that the New Testament describes the cross, Greek word, skandalon? It is a scandal that Christ took you in our insurrections, in all of our desires to usurp God's authority, and God did even more than give you a cabinet position. He adopted you and called you his son. And is it any wonder that the angels look at the church and scratch their head and go, God, I don't understand this, Lord. This is unbelievable. And it is that God took those who were his enemies and made them his sons and friends and calls them then heirs. So do you see why understanding your past is really important? It is to remind you of what you have come from. It's not to hold you back and hold you captive and so you can't do anything else ever again, but it's to remind you, look, this is what Christ saved me from and therefore I need to remember it because on the canvas of the darkness of my life, I see the jewel, the the, the beautiful jewel of the gospel so much clearer. So don't forget. The second thing here is that we are not to let go. Look at verse 23. It says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
So in verse 23, Paul gives us a very clear conclusion, don't let go of the gospel. But what's interesting about this passage is he says this, if indeed you continue in the faith. So he says all these things about what you were, and then he says, if indeed you continue in the faith. And what we have here is a conditional statement. And if you're a careful reader of the Bible, suddenly you'll have some questions. Questions that, frankly, I don't want to avoid or just kind of walk around them. Questions like this, well, wait a minute, does Paul think that these people, you just talked about how they've been set free from their sins and they're free from their past, but now does Paul mean these people can lose their reconciliation? Does it somehow think that it's possible for a believer to fall away? And so does he say that this reconciliation in verses 21 and 22 are actually conditional? Is that what he's saying? Or how does this fit with other passages that talk about the eternal security of the believer or the perseverance of the saints? Let me give you just a couple thoughts that I think frame how we could think and should think about this and all conditional statements within the context of Scripture. The first is this. Point one would be that the Bible clearly teaches that those who receive Christ as their Savior are eternally secure. Those who have genuinely received Christ are eternally secure. Maybe growing up you heard it this way. Once saved, what? Always saved. Right. This idea that, man, once I've received Christ, that means that if I've genuinely received him, then my eternal security in Christ is locked in the very sovereignty and the purpose of God. And the reason that we say that is because the work of justification, the legal declaration over us that we are clean, forgiven, and righteous, is a legal declaration that God does, not that we do. And therefore, if God does it, we can't undo it. The second thing would be that those who are genuinely saved, they persevere to the end. Meaning, sometimes folks use that phrase, once saved, always saved, to mean they receive Christ and then they live like a pagan the rest of their life because of some decision they made when they were six years old. The perseverance of the saints means that those who genuinely receive Christ, they bear fruit their entire life because they've been born again, they've been changed, they're a different person. I'm a different person today because of Christ living and remaining in me. I am born again. And I'm indwelt by the Spirit of God. And that means that when I begin to get off track, God disciplines me, He chastens me, brings me back. It means that the Spirit of God testifies with my spirit that I am the child of God and that my, it, the seed of God remains in me so that those who are genuinely converted persevere, persevere to the end. So that then raises a third question. So why would Paul talk this way? Well, here's why I think he does. Because God frequently uses warnings in the Bible as a tool or a means directed towards those he knows are going to persevere, and he uses the, the warning as a means of cautioning them or encouraging them to be vigilant. In other words, the warning is a vehicle to guard them for, from doing what the warning suggests. I'll say that again. The warning is a vehicle to guard them from doing what the warning suggests. Spurgeon writes this, but what if those cautions are the means in the hand of God of keeping his people from wandering? What if they are used to excite a holy fear in the minds of his children and so become the means of preventing the evil which they denounce? Read that again. What if they are used to excite a holy fear in the minds of his children so and so become the means of preventing the evil which they denounce? Some of you may not understand this. Look at Hebrews 6. Probably the best passage to me that was helpful when a number of years ago we went through the book of Hebrews, we came across the tough text of Hebrews 6, in realizing there's believers on, on both sides of this particular 
passage, I'm just telling you where I come down on it and how I think about these kind of conditional statements. Hebrews 6, 1 to 8 is one of the most stern warnings in all of the New Testament about the peril of falling away. And he gives some pretty strong language in this text and some scary things. You know, it's meant to kind of give you the shivers, like, whoo, so you read into the Bible, you know, something kind of scary, and it's kind of like, whoo, that's a scary passage. Well, then in chapter 6 and verse 9, the writer of Hebrews says this. So he's just given one of the strongest warnings in all the Bible, and then he says this, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. You see it? Though we speak to you this way, we feel sure about better things, things that belong to salvation. So he says, I'm talking to you about these things, but I'm sure that these things won't apply to you. I'm talking to you about these things, probably because in the congregation of people that the letter would be written, there were people, so-called believers, who the writer knew very well were not going to persevere to the end. And he writes to this entire church and warns them about the possibility of falling away because he knows that there's a group of people in that church who will never fall away because they really got it. As a father, I understand this. Because... Sometimes when my kids do something that's sinful or selfish, I use an extreme example, or they say something to me like, well, why do we have to do this? And I'll say something like this, son, the reason I'm saying this is because I don't want you to go to prison. Okay? They're like, oh, so, uh, prison? You can go to prison for not sharing your cookies? Yes. You know? No, but... You know what I mean. I'm using an extreme example to make the point to elicit in them a fearful response so they know that this is a guardrail that you need to stay inside. Fourth, the approach warning people about what they won't do is further verified by the language in verse 23 where it says, if you. That can also be translated in the Greek as provided that and doesn't necessarily express doubt in the person. So you could actually translate it this way. At any rate, if you stand firm in the faith, and I'm sure that you will, that's what he means. At any rate, if you stand firm in the faith, and I'm sure that you will. So why is he talking this way? He's talking this way so that this group of people will see they've got to go back and cling to the gospel. He knows that they will, and he warns them about the perils of if they don't, so that they will. Therefore, here, the admonition to not let go of the gospel needs to be seen for what it is. It is a powerful warning that is designed to motivate us to cling to the core of our faith. That when we start to stumble or we start to grow weary, that we grab a hold and we say, I will not let go of this rope. I won't. I will hold on. Yea, though he slay me, I will bless him. For I know that my Redeemer lives. I will not let go. And you can try and throw anything you want at me, devil, and all my sins and problems, but I will not let go of this rope. I will not let go. And that's why Paul says to them, look, I want you to continue to have a life marked by persevering trust. Continue in it. That's what it means. Focus on it. The danger of drifting from the gospel needed to be resisted at all costs. So he says, continue in the gospel. Continue in it. And then he also says, be stable and steadfast. Two words which mean the very foundation of their faith, the very foundation of their lives. And it was solid. It was sure. Do you know that underneath this church is the gospel? 
Underneath your heart is the gospel. Underneath your marriage is the gospel. Underneath your children's lives and your parenting is the gospel. And Paul says you have to go back and be sure and steadfast in the faith. 1 Timothy 3.15 says that the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of truth. The reason that he can call the church that is because the church has been entrusted with the gospel. And that's why the gospel, Christ being the center, has to always remain the center of the church because that's the heart, the core of what it means for the church to possess truth. It is that it has the truth of the gospel. And it also means, 1 Corinthians 15, that when we grow weary, that we're not to back away from the gospel, but instead to focus on it and thereby draw strength. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. You hear that? Because of the gospel who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So what he's saying is this. Rejoice in the gospel and be steadfast, be immovable. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes church gets filled with immovable people about the wrong things, right? That was a great place for an amen. Let's try that again. That the church gets filled with immovable people, but about the wrong things. Good. Yeah, like someone sits in your pew. And you're like, hey, pal, I, I bought that pew. So can you get out, you know? Someone sits in your spot, or they park in your spot. Or you don't like something, you get all torqued about it. And the problem is that some people, their, their life, they, they, they sing this song, you know, we shall, we shall, we shall not be moved, but it's over dumb stuff. And yet the reality is the gospel is the thing that we should be immovable from. In light of the gospel, let's, be, let's remain steadfast and committed to the core being the core. Remember, maturity is not just what you know. Maturity is knowing what's important. And the core is important. Christ is important. And church gets weird when people get immovable over things that should be immovable and when they start moving stuff that should never be moved, like the core of what the gospel is. So what Paul says here is this. Don't ever forget the gospel and don't you let go of the gospel. That we ought to have lives like the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy when he said, God God came to save sinners of whom I am chief. You've got to walk into marriage with this attitude. I'm coming into this marriage as the chief of sinners. Isn't it easy to think about chief of sinners and you're like, oh yeah, I know, the, I, that's my spouse, right? No, it's you. It's you. It's you. You look in the mirror. You're the chief sinner because you know your heart. And to go back to the gospel means that we come back to the fact that we know that we were part of the insurrection. We were part of the insurgency. We were the ones carrying the armaments of our lust and our greed. We were the ones saying to God, you will not rule over us. And by his grace, he opened our eyes. We dropped our arms. We confessed our rebellion. We flung our hearts on him. He called us holy and blameless and above reproach. And we're not any of that. It's only because of Christ. Isn't that unbelievable? So what does that mean then? Here's what I want you to do. The first is this. I want you to keep rehearsing the gospel. I want you to keep the main one the main thing. Because the gospel is so much more than just knowing you're going to go to heaven. I want to take your understanding of the gospel and make it really broad and really wide and frankly really deep. Because the message that Jesus can make the enemies of God, his friends, changes your life. 
It changes everything. It doesn't just change where you're going to go when you die. It changes absolutely everything about your heart, your life, your marriage, your kids, your money. It transforms everything. When Jesus comes, He transforms your life. The second thing is I want you to use your past. Don't let it use you. Use your past. Don't let it use you. Sometimes people say we need to forget about the past. And they use Bible passages to describe that. Again, I don't want you to be held back by your past and misplaced guilt. At the same time, I want you to use that past big time. I want you to use it to glorify God. I don't want you to glory in your past. I don't want you to magnify your past. I don't want you to make much of your past. But I don't want you to forget your past. Remember where you were. Remember and rejoice in what God did in you. Remember that your past was filled with all sorts of insurrections, but Jesus came. Remember that your life was a mess and there was nothing that you could do, but through the blood of Christ you were set free. Every once in a while I'll see a Christian bumper sticker on the road, and some of them frankly are, most of them are rather cheesy. And there was one I saw some time ago that said this, When Satan reminds you about your past, remind him about his future. And I was like, okay, it's kind of a, it's kind of in your face, Satan, kind of a bumper sticker, you know, like, tell me about my past, I'll tell you about your future, pal, you know. It's it's part of my heart, like, you know, kind of likes that. It's kind of a little in your face kind of a thing, but it's a little insurrection thing that God's still working on, I guess. I don't know, but that's decent. Here's the better one. When Satan reminds you about your past, remind your heart about the gospel. Instead of getting in his face and saying, oh yeah, you think I got a past? Wait, you see your future, pal. Just don't, don't go there. Instead, say, yeah, you're right, man. I got a past. I'm not denying I got a past. I got a past like a big time past. But you know what? I got a Savior who cleansed me of all my sin. And you can't touch that. So use your past. Don't deny it. Don't make it less than what it is. Don't make it more than what it is. But when the Satan reminds you of your past, remind, preach to your heart about the gospel. Third, I want you to learn to connect your life to the gospel. Don't separate trusting Jesus from the details of life. I want you to go back and and cling to the fact that Jesus is worthy of your trust. Listen, if he's worthy of your trust, making you from an enemy to God's friend, from being a rebel to now being a son, if Christ is worthy of that kind of trust, don't you think he's worthy to trust him? He's worthy of your trust as it relates to the needs of your spouse's life? or the finances that you're in, or the fact that he's got a good plan for your life, or the fact that his timing is perfect, if Jesus can be trusted to help you lay down your arms, he can be trusted for anything. And so all trust is grounded in the gospel. And Paul says, don't waver from that. And then finally, when you are tempted to quit, when you're just like, I can't do this, I can't do this anymore, I just, I can't, it's just too hard, it's too much work, I can't go back to counseling, I can't work on my marriage, I can't trust, I can't, you have to go back to the gospel. That the foundation of everything, the ground of it all, in the midst of hard times and storms, is the fact that there is a grappling hook attached to your heart. The, the hymn writer said, it's like a fetter, bind my heart, my, my heart's prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, so bind my heart with a fetter to you, Lord. 
It is that there's a grappling hook attached to your heart. And when you are tempted to quit, remember to cling to the guideline, the safety net, the, the, the cord, the umbilical cord, the heart of the gospel and say, I will not let go. I will not quit. I will not throw in the towel. I will instead choose to bank my life on the fact that God tells me that nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. That verse is meant to be a hook to your soul. When the winds of stress and problems and sin blow, that you know nothing can separate me from Jesus. A few months ago, our family went to the Children's Museum in Indianapolis and one of the cool things about that experience was our kids got to do a climbing wall. And, uh, you know, they just love climbing walls and the whole uh, idea of what's involved there. Even Savannah tried to get in on the climbing wall. And while Jeremiah was allowed to ski at three, no, no, she's not climbing a wall at two, okay? So the boys had the helmets on everything, and, uh, and you know what? They're really good at it. They, they've got good, you know, body-to-strength-to-body uh, mass equation, unlike their dad. I'd be up there and be like, Help, you know, get me down, right? So they're up there and they can climb. And so my role as dad was to have the uh, the slack line. So I'm seated on the seated on the ground, and I got their line. It's coming down here, and I'm uh, my responsibility is to take the slack and to 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 reduce the slack as they start climbing. So our boys would be up on the wall and they'd start climbing, and then I'd be there and I'd quickly uh, take care of the slack so it was tight. And what's interesting about that the moment is I'd be pulling the slack tight, and the boys would look at me and say. You got me, Dad? And I wanted to say, like, yeah, I got you. Like, this is hard, you know. Just climb, you know. But the slack made them nervous. It helped that they could not only go forward and know that they wouldn't fall and be hurt, but the tighter that I pulled on the line, the more confident they were to go ahead and grab for the next rock. And pretty soon I learned this, and so as they started to grab for one, I, I pulled the line tight, and, and Sarah and myself and Savannah on the ground were like, grab the rock, grab the rock, and I pulled it tight, and they went to grab, and they got it, and then they go, oh, yeah, and Savannah's going, oh, good job, good job, good job, you know, and it's all exciting, we're cheering them on, go for the next one, so I pull it tight and pull it tight, they grab for the next one, and go to the next one, I pull it tight and pull it tight, and grab for the next one, and as they go to reach for that last hard rock, they're like, okay, okay, and I'm like, go for it, buddy, I got you, I got you tight, man, you can get it, get it, get it, I got you covered, you are tight, man, I got it, and he went and grabbed for it. And bingo, over the top, and we all cheered. And the confidence that he felt was because the grappling hook at the bottom was tight. He could climb the wall because he knew that his dad had him. His dad had him covered. And some of you, the word that you need to hear from the Lord is this. God has you covered. There is a grappling hook in your heart. There's a belay that's attached. And God has you with the sovereign hands of a loving Father who paid for all your sins. And He will never let you go. You, you will not be able to escape from His grasp. You will not be able to fall out from underneath Him. He has you. He's got you in control. He, he may not look like it or feel like it. You may not wonder. You may be scared. You may be on the side of the rock. But the reality is God has got you covered. So here it is. Grab the rock by faith and say, Christ, here I'm going because I am not letting go of the gospel. God, you've got me. Romans 8 tells me nothing can separate me from the love of God, so you've got me covered. Therefore, here I go. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to hope in you. And I'm not going to let go, because you never let go of me. So don't ever forget, and don't let go of that gospel. When the rope gets tight and you feel like you're going to fall, you squeeze harder and say, I will not let go 
especially when I'm afraid. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would put in our hearts the reality of what it means for us to grab the rock. What it means for us to know that you've got us covered. What it means to know that that you are right in the midst of every problem that we face. And I pray, Lord, that in the quietness of this moment that we would just be able to say to you, Jesus, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you've got me covered. And thank you that you'll never let me go. College Park family, as we just have a moment of reflection, where is it this morning that God has you? Where do you need to say to him, God, I believe you got me. I'm scared. I'm on the side of this mountain, feel like I'm clinging on my fingertips, but I know you've got me, so I'm okay. What is it this morning that maybe you need to write down on that white card that we distributed and just say, Lord, I'm not going to forget what you've done. I'm going to continue to cling and trust and rely upon you. So Jesus, today would you just speak truth into our weary hearts and remind us of the beauty of what it means for us to say, Lord, I can't do this. And then to say, but Jesus can. Thank you that that's a sovereign, established fact. A line that protects us, guards us, and holds us. And that you're at the other end saying, I got you, Mark. Go for it. Be Christ-like. Love in risky ways. Trust me. Believe me. I got you covered. So thanks, Christ. You're the core. You're worthy. You're the center of everything. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. Yeah, you're right, you can't. You never could. But Jesus can. God bless you.